Every person who can vote should vote on Election Day. I'm Brian Lehrer. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast, bringing you the best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear smart conversations from shows like On the Media, The New Yorker Radio Hour, The Takeaway, and yes, The Brian Lehrer Show. Plus, great reporting from our WNYC newsroom. We'll give you the information you need so you can choose wisely on Election Day. Welcome to Politics Brief. What does it look like to run for office as a woman? Being a candidate has been such an honor, such a joy. What I get to do every day is travel around the seven counties in our district and talk to people about the issues that are of highest importance to them. Lauren Underwood is the Democratic nominee running for Illinois' 14th congressional district. And Tiffany Shedd is running to be the Republican nominee in Arizona's 1st Congressional District. This district is where I've lived since second grade. It's my home. We have property up and down the district. We've settled up and down the district. And I absolutely love rural Arizona. For Tiffany, leading wasn't exactly an obvious choice. My husband said, I've got somebody. You'll never get them to run. You know, they're stubborn. They're a coward. They're never going to get in front. They're just going to push from behind. You're never going to get them to run. And I said, oh, I will. I will totally get them to run. I am persistent. You know that. And he said, well, honey, it's you. And then I said, well, you're a jerk. (laughs) I'm not a coward. You're a jerk. But thought about it. And, you know, I've spent my life involved in rural Arizona and and specifically this district in agriculture, in farming, in charity. And it's just too precious of a place to lose. Lauren Underwood, a registered nurse in Illinois, had worked in the Obama administration But the idea to run herself came from the outrage she felt as a constituent. When I found myself at my congressman's one and only public event of 2017, it was a moderated question and answer session hosted by a local chapter of the League of Women Voters. And that night, he made a promise. He said he was only going to support a version of Obamacare repeal that let people with pre-existing conditions keep their health care coverage. So when he made that promise, when my congressman made that promise, I believed him because it was personal. And then he went and voted for the American Health Care Act, the version of repeal that did the opposite and made it cost prohibitive for people like me to be able to get coverage. And I was upset, not by the vote itself, but I was upset that he didn't have the integrity to be honest with us the one time he planned to stand before our community. Both women have hit the road, traveling their districts, talking to voters, and they've been experiencing similar challenges, some seemingly silly. Like, I have to do everything in uncomfortable shoes, where I'd much rather wear boots, um, but it's just kind of not appropriate always. But others, more insidious. I had never experienced people doubting my abilities, doubting my professionalism, doubting my qualification based on being a woman. Now, I've certainly experienced my share of racism in this country, but the sexism and misogyny was not something that I was expecting. They may be from different ends of the political spectrum, but these are two women who want to change the political landscape. One of the perspectives that is being lost is a conservative woman's voice. Do not discount in any way the impact of individual women stepping off the sidelines and now taking on our political system. I'm Amy Walter, and today, on my first show here at The Takeaway, we ask, will 2018 be another year of the woman? Shauna Shamus is my first guest. 
She's assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden, and she's been researching the political gender gap. Shauna, welcome to The Takeaway. Hello. Shauna, we refer to 1992 and now this year as the year of the woman, which suggests that it's still not normal to have a whole bunch of women running for Congress. Well, sadly, it's not. That, that's not a misnomer. Women run for office at rates far less than uh, men do and far less than women's proportion of the population would suggest overall. Uh, Women are maybe a fifth of our country's political leaders right now, but we're a majority of the population. So that's a severe underrepresentation. So to call it the year of the woman, I think, is fitting. The possible problematic thing of calling it that is that there's a lot of media hype and then it doesn't happen. And we've seen that, actually. The media has used the term year of the woman since 1992, and it's not been as big a gain as we saw then. But I think, you know, if there ever was a year to call it, this would be that year. Clearly, when we talk about the year of the woman in 2018, we're talking about Democratic women. Right. When we say the number of women in politics is growing, mostly that's been Democratic women. There's a couple of key reasons for that, and it has to do with the difference in uh, culture and ideology between the parties and also structurally the opportunities for women in terms of fundraising. So the structural factors are probably the more important. For a long time, there was a severe kind of financial deficit in terms of the amount of money that men could raise, um, which far outstripped the amount that women could raise. And groups that sprang up just to support women, like Emily's List, for example, have basically erased that gap entirely so that women candidates now, at least when they're similarly situated, as in incumbents against incumbents or challengers against challengers, there's not a gender gap in terms of how much women raise versus men. There's still a large gap just for Republican women. So (laughs) it's Democratic women that have been able to equalize that gap, and particularly because of groups, organizations, individuals that will support women specifically in politics. The interesting thing is that ideologically, that tends to be a progressive and not a conservative phenomenon. So Democratic women can say, we need more women in politics. Like, that's a really important thing. We need diversity. That's a a fundamental kind of basic tenet of the Democratic Party today. The Republican Party is based on a different idea, and that's that everybody's an individual. And it doesn't make the Republican donors reach for their wallets in the same way. What does this mean, just as a political scientist, this idea that you're going to have a majority of men who support one party and an overwhelming majority of women who support the other party? Are we to a point now where we are going to almost literally have a girl party and a boy party? If we have a historic gender split, it might look that way this year. I really do think it's an artifact of Donald Trump in particular as the candidate, though, and not uh, a structural feature of the parties. So this is somewhat unique to Donald Trump and that and not um, going to impact just the image of the party post-Trump. So 10 years from now, 15 years from now, this may not be the case. I am hoping for the Republican Party's sake that that is true because there are more women in this country and they vote more often than men. So if the Republican Party is smart, it will not let itself turn into the boys' party. That is 
tremendously to its detriment. In looking at women potentially running for office, you said that women were significantly less likely than men to think politics could solve important problems, and women of color believe this even less than men. That was the depressing part, that they don't want to get involved in politics, in part, you say, because they saw greater cost and lower rewards. And more important, they don't think that being involved in politics is going to solve problems. I know that that sounds depressing, particularly if you don't spend all your time immersed in the data like I do. It's a stark conclusion. The The fact is, though, it describes a moment in time in a set of historical circumstances where we've made running for office in this country incredibly costly and we've created a, a kind of a situation where those who do hold office are are not very respected and um, kind of um, ridiculed and often can't get done whatever it is they came in to get done. Uh, I also think that's kind of a moment in time, though, I think that could be different. So the perhaps uplifting part of that research finding that I present is that we could change all of those things. We could make it less costly to run for office. That's fairly easy to do. But more importantly, you can make people believe that politics matters, right? And it turns out that can change even faster than I thought, (laughs) because I was writing that book 2012 to 2015. And the 2016 election, in addition to being kind of a wake-up call about who runs, I think reminded people that politics is important in a way that I didn't think could happen so quickly. So the number of women and minorities running for office in this year is itself a testament to the fact that, boy, if people think politics matters, they'll do it. So that's ultimately what it takes, though, is an outside event to get more women and especially more women of color engaged in politics. Well, uh, we could do it in a more sustained, and I hope we start doing it in a more sustained way, that within our kind of local communities and particularly for younger people and young women of color, that we would kind of get them involved in politics from an earlier age and kind of show them, A, that it matters and B, how it matters and C, to whom. I think there's a huge amount that governments, particularly local governments, do that most people don't see and that affects our lives every day in all kinds of ways. So that if we could help young people see this from an earlier age, there could be a more sustained involvement uh, later so that it doesn't take that big shock to the system. And so keeping the commitment post-2018 is the challenge. Correct. This could be a good shock to the system. There's this wonderful quote from William Penn, And he was trying to write a charter for Pennsylvania. And he said something like, governments are like clocks. They go by the motion that men give them. And I think about that quote a lot. It's very hard to create a democracy and to make it work. And it's very easy to lose it. You just stop believing in it. (laughs) So what I see of this last couple years is this, not just that um, there's been these interesting racial and gender trends going on, but also this um, dangerous moment of uh, lack of faith in our democracy working. So what I'm most hopeful about for the 2018 elections is I'm hoping to see really high turnout, a lot of belief that you can change 
things. You can change the world <laughs> through voting and through electoral politics and through running for office because it, the system only works depending on kind of who participates and hopefully a high level. Shauna Shamus is assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden. Before we go any further, let me take a minute to introduce myself. You may be familiar with my work at the Cook Political Report, or sometimes I'm even on your TV. But I've also joined the team at The Takeaway. And at the end of each week, I'll be here to hang out with you. We'll explore what's happening in policy and politics across the country. We're going to break down what it is, how we got here, and how it's impacting you. Now, if the phrase gear of the woman sounds familiar, it's because this isn't the first time it's been used to describe a wave of women running for office. That was back in 1992. And I remember it well. I had just arrived in D.C. as a young, freshly minted college grad with a perm. I mean, it was the 90s, okay? And my first job was at a group called the Women's Campaign Fund. It was a group dedicated to electing more women to all levels of office. It was a pretty sleepy time for women in politics when I started that summer of 1991. The big news from 1990 was the election of three women governors, including Ann Richards of Texas. There were only two women in the Senate and 33 women in the House, and there wasn't any reason to think this was going to change all that much. And then this happened. Judge Thomas's life is a model for all Americans, and he's earned the right to sit on this nation's highest court, and I am very proud indeed to nominate him for this position. On July 1st, 1991, President George H.W. Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. Now, initially, there was no real opposition to the nomination until an FBI interview with a then-unknown Anita Hill was leaked to the press. Hearings were reopened, and on October 11th, Anita Hill testified. My working relationship with Judge Thomas was positive. After approximately three months of working there, he asked me to go out socially. I declined the invitation to go out socially with him. I was very uncomfortable with the idea and told him so. However, to my regret, in the following few weeks, he continued to ask me out. My working relationship became even more strained when Judge Thomas began to use work situations to discuss sex. She faced question after question from an all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee. All we've heard for 103 days is about a, a most remarkable man. And nobody but you has come forward. If what you say this man said to you occurred, why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life? That's a very good question. And I'm sure that I can't not answer that to your satisfaction. The Senate went on to confirm Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court by a vote of 52 to 48. And while he took his seat on the nation's highest court, women across the country demanded their seat at the table. Last October, the answer to my questions came to me on my television screen when I saw the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings. I looked at that row of blue suits and red ties and I went, oh, 
Of course they have not dealt with the issues that are important to me and my family and my community and thousands of other families. I don't see my face on that television screen. That's Patty Murray, and she wasn't the only one. Across the country, in record numbers, women were running. If you want more of the same, I'm not your candidate. In the United States Senate, there are currently two women. There are many of us that say that two are not enough. Elect Carol Mosley Braun, our U.S. Senator. She's not a millionaire. Let's put a fighter in the Senate. I'll open up those doors. And the results were historic. Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer become the fifth and sixth women in the U.S. Senate, which uh, is an amazing uh, situation given the fact that going into this evening, there were only two. So uh, clearly it was the year of the woman in the U.S. Senate. Patty Murray also joined the ranks of the U.S. Senate back in 1992, becoming the first woman from Washington state to do so. But before Murray ran for office, she had an experience in Olympia, Washington, that sparked her career in politics. My kids preschool program, our state legislature took away the funding. So I went down to the legislature just to tell them how great this program was, and I thought for sure they would just listen to me and put the money back in. And a state senator literally said to me, you can't make a difference, you're just a mom in tennis shoes. And that was so maddening. Moms have an important voice in the policies, and everybody should have a voice in the policies. So that put-down of me is a mantle I took on. Yeah, I'm just a mom in tennis shoes, and I have just as much right and willingness to be involved in decisions as well. She turned that phrase into a rallying cry for her Senate campaign, one that became synonymous with barriers being broken as a wave of women were elected to Congress. A legislator told her, You can't make a difference. You're just a mom in tennis shoes. Just a mom in tennis shoes. Us moms in tennis shoes are going to take over. My tennis shoes are going back to the United States Senate to speak for thousands of families. Thank you. It's been over 25 years, and the mom in tennis shoes is now one of the most senior leaders of the Democratic Party. And yet, despite her success and the successes of the women who followed her, we're still a long way off from anything resembling gender equity. I spoke with Senator Murray in her office on Capitol Hill, and we talked about the barriers still in place that could prevent women from getting into politics. We can never stop asking. And I'm constantly asking myself, what are the barriers that keep women out of those positions? What are the barriers that keep them from thinking when they're in fifth grade that they can be uh, whoever they want to be? Because there have been some good changes. When I look in the Senate today and we have 23 women, Is it 50? No, but it's 23, and every committee hearing has women in it and women's voices, and and we're part of the decision-making. How do we keep breaking down those barriers? And and we still have a long ways to go. So how do we do that? How does that happen? Oh, gosh, you know, I take the time to really listen to women, all the way from when young women come and want to get their picture taken with me. I make it very clear to them, you know, this is something you can do. I never thought I'd be here. Um, It's important. Your voice is important. Tell me what's important to you. And then think about being in public office. Think about what you can be. So from that perspective, all the way to talking to women about what are the barriers that keep you from earning to your maximum potential, being who you want to be, being at the top rungs. One of them right now is access to childcare, and it's an issue I am championing because I hear that over and over again. I can't, I've got my kids, I need to take care of them, I can't get good daycare. That's something that we need to address nationally. And how does that get done? Do you need more women in Congress to do that, or do you need to have more men 
who are championing this issue and not leaving it to women Absolutely to do both. When you have women who come here who've lived that and talk about it in their campaigns and people vote for them because it's something they care about, they will come here and champion it too. But we also have to make it into an issue that's important to men. So I speak to men in terms of the income for their families that's being reduced or the stress on their families that they can't achieve. And by the way, do you have daughters? Because you want them to be who they can ever be. So you have to do both. Let's talk a little bit about sexual harassment. I remember your election in 1992. It was an open seat because the sitting senator then, Brock Adams, had been accused of some pretty horrible sexual harassment. He ended up not running. You won his seat. Fast forward 26 years later, we have instances in Congress still of sexual harassment, members harassing staff and others, and yet there's not been much done on that. Yeah, and it's interesting. There, We have to learn as women. This is not something you say, well, we've done that, we move on, because women tend to do that. Okay, we've solved this problem, what's the next one in front of us? We have to recognize that um, this is an issue that we can't just assume goes away or that we're done with it. It changes with the time. It's changing now where the Me Too movement has allowed people to come out and be vocal about it that weren't listened to before, that have made it real for everybody. So. The term you're the woman was used when you first came in. It's being used again. Are you excited about that term or do you think it suggests it's just not normal to have so many women running? We have to give it the title of year of the woman. I'm excited about it because it looks at the potential of who is out there that can be a part of the decision making and says to people, am I part of this as well? We saw it the day after the inauguration when women and men came out across the country, across the world in small cities, big cities, and said, wait a minute, um, this is my country too. This is what a democracy looks like. I am, have to be part of it, and right now I feel left out of it. Tell me a little bit about what you learned from watching the first woman as a nominee of a major party run for president and the role that being female played. Well, I know Hillary really well. I served with her in the United States Senator. I, I sat side by side with her on so many issues working with her, and I saw her very differently than most of the country saw her as a candidate who was being attacked or, you know, words taken apart. So to me, the disappointment was that the rest of the country didn't see that Hillary that I thought would be so, so good as a president. And do you believe sexism played a role? I think it's hard to know. I think it played a role in people in a number of different ways. I'll share a story with you because I think it's kind of eye-opening. Is that I had somebody tell me they were knocking on doors for Hillary, and the woman who answered the door said, I love you, but I, I just can't vote for Hillary. And she said, well, tell me why. And she said, well, because I work with all men, and I just don't want to go to work and have them hold this over me every time she does something I don't agree with. <laughs> I was like, men never say that, right? If she does something I don't like, everybody's going to say women do this. Tell me what it's like now. You're back home. You're talking to voters. Can you feel this intensity difference and enthusiasm difference that we keep hearing about among voters, especially women voters? It shows itself when I walk through the grocery store or go through my neighborhood or go to an event. I don't care where I am. People, women in particular, come up to me and go, I got to give you a hug. Honestly, I hear that so often because they just feel like so grateful that there is a woman there saying what they would say and they just want to give me their encouragement. They tell me to eat my kale. They, you know, they give me their hugs. I mean, they, they know that their voice is really silenced in some ways that it never has been before and they want me to be strong and stay, stand up for them. And that kind of feeling is out there for all the women who are running today. 
Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, really appreciate it. Democratic Senator Patty Murray. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. All this hour, we're exploring women in politics. And now, let's get to the GOP. VUPAC stands for Value in Electing Women. That's Julie Conway. She's the executive director of VUPAC. Our mission is to help elect and support uh, Republican congresswomen and senators and to help candidates that want to come to the U.S. Congress get here. Julie's optimistic about the outlook for Republican women this cycle, but she's a bit skeptical of the whole year of the woman idea. I think that it's the year of the woman um, because there's giving so much attention to the, to the women that are running. And I think that's terrific. Uh, we've had tremendous women run in the past that just haven't garnered the same in- attention that the men are getting. So I think it's great. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, uh, we should all want more women in Congress. Democrats, for example, when they go to their national convention, there is a quota of women that you have to have as delegates. Republicans encourage it, but there's not a quota. And so is there a difference in the way that the Republican Party sees the issue of parity or puts it on as high of a priority as maybe Democrats do? Generally, on the Republican side, there is the, the greater emphasis is, is put on having the best person come out of an election, uh, whether it happens to be a a male or a female. This year, when you look at the approval ratings of the president, it's only about a third of women give President Trump a positive approval rating. About half of men give him a positive approval rating. And I'm wondering what this says about the Republican Party and their ability to attract women voters when only a third of women think that the president, they approve of what the the job that the president's doing? It's hard to put a a single brushstroke on this answer. Um, I think that, you know, there are plenty of women, whether they are Republicans or Democrats, that feel a little bit left out of the process. And so I think that getting more women engaged and having them fully understand the issues and what's at stake is critically important. And I think too often, you know, we leave it to others to decide. And I think the tone and tenor of politics matters. And so I think overall, women could be put off more now than they ever have been before. And that's not a statement, you know, necessarily against President Trump. I think it's across the board, the fighting between the parties, what's what you see play out on the news every night, you lose interest. And it's now when we have to be most interested. I mean, there's more at stake now than ever. And that bringing women to the polls is critically important and being able to communicate that message. So is that a bigger threat then for Republicans or the bigger challenge for Republicans is not how many women are in Congress or an elected office, but holding on to and expanding an appeal to women voters? Yes. I think it's less about electing men or women at that point. I think it's about having people elected to Congress uh, with character. Uh, people that are here that are worthy of the support and the respect and that you believe that they're here for the right reasons. Do you think that the women candidates that you're talking to, do you advise them to find a way to distance themselves from the president given where the approval rating numbers are among women? Should they say, as a woman, I have a different perspective on the president? Should they acknowledge that? Well, no. I I think that, you know, you acknowledge that and again, I don't encourage candidates to to say anything that isn't true. And so they need to be who they are and and run 
run on their own merits. I think that if I were to paint this with a broad brushstroke, I would say that a great number of the Republican candidates I am working with this cycle will definitely speak to the president's tone and how that's not something they agree with. Overall, they would talk about the idea of what Congress is accomplishing and that they're running for Congress. If they're running on an issue that the president agrees with, great. If they have issues that the president doesn't agree with, well, that's important, too, if that's where folks stand. Julie Conway is the executive director of VUPAC, which supports Republican women running for office. Remember Arizona congressional candidate Tiffany Shedd? You heard her earlier in the show. Well, she told me that coming from a Western state gave her an inherent advantage as a woman seeking political office. I know there's a lot of women running for office, but I'm also an Arizonan, so I feel like we've had the century of the women here. I mean, Arizona rebelled the first year we became a state because they wouldn't allow women to vote. One of the very first things we did becoming a state was immediately put the right for women to vote back in our Constitution. We've had governors. We've had secretary of states. We've always been more about who's capable to do the job. And and I think that's partly from being in the frontier for so long. Sure, the American West stirs the imagination, evoking images of rough-and-tumble pioneers armed with only enough grit to tame an unforgiving frontier. I mean, that's how it looks on TV, right? Dr. Quinn was a horseback-riding medicine woman, not a researcher tucked away in some East Coast university. But were women in the real-life Wild West similarly empowered? And if so, has that empowerment had a lasting effect on present-day politics? Tiffany Shedd just may be on to something. Last August, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors picked Geraldine Peden to fill an empty seat in the State House of Representatives. It meant that the Arizona legislature with 40% of the seats now filled by women, surpassed Nevada, another Western state, to claim the most female representation of any state house in the nation. And while Democrats nationally account for more women in state government, Arizona, which is controlled at every level by Republicans, has a long history of electing women. Is this the legacy of a historical trend that has put Western frontier states way ahead of the curve? There is an argument to be made that the basis for Female participation has long-term cultural implications that we see play out. But there are contradictions to that. That's Laura Wordworth Nye, professor of history and the executive vice president and provost for Idaho State University. Montana has the first female federal office holder in Jeanette Rankin, who was elected to the U.S. House in 1916. But Montana hasn't sent another woman to the U.S. Congress since 1916. So it's a complex story about local politics as well as federal politics. But taken as a whole, it's clear that women's participation in politics is broader in these Western states. When I talked with her about this intersection, she explained the complicated history of why so many frontier states paved the way for the 19th Amendment, which gave women across the country the right to vote in 1920. This is one of the great stories of the suffrage movement, and it really begins in Wyoming in 1869, which becomes the first state to grant full suffrage to women, uh, followed by Colorado, Idaho, and Utah in the 1890s. And these are efforts that are really driven by local politics, 
focus on granting women the right to vote with some idea that women would vote in the same way as their husbands. Can you give an example of where women having the right to vote actually increased in some policy way the ability for women to do certain things there that they say weren't able to do in other parts of the country at that time? The second wave of suffrage in the American West that still predates 1919, we see that. Women who are advocating locally for changes like preschool, parks, for children to play in, safe drinking water, those types of initiatives. Women are becoming very involved in these Western states compared to their Eastern counterparts. These women who were making this trek, was it really taking place differently for men and women? It's taking place differently for the genders. Certainly second generation women whose mothers were pioneers we see significant change in their opportunities in Western locations. In Oregon and Washington, there are a number of studies that looked at generational opportunity. So there certainly are gains to be made, in part because these new territories, these new states, don't have the entrenched Eastern infrastructure. They don't have the limitations that are placed on political participation by longstanding party mechanisms, for example. And so there is more freedom, but it really depends on the woman and her circumstances. When you talk about women across the board, were there only certain women who were able to participate in the process? Any woman who was a citizen or not excluded by some other state law. Now, in Idaho, the Idaho state constitution excluded Mormons from voting. And so Mormon women early in statehood were not allowed to vote. White women, of course, have more freedoms than any other woman in the American West. And women of means have more freedom. They have freedom of transportation, for example. But a Chinese woman in a mining camp probably has less freedoms than most women in the country. In places like Texas, for example, the women's suffrage movement, which is controlled by white elite women, are using the politics of race to make the case that women should have the vote to protect the electorate. Because Jim Crow laws in place in Texas in the 1910s already limited the black vote. The Austin Women's Suffrage Association, for example, runs advertisements that say, make Texas white. But for white women, certainly second generation white women whose mothers were pioneers, we see significant change in their opportunities in Western locations. Do you see any corollaries then between the challenges we're facing as we move into the 21st century, both questions about the roles of men and women and this time, how technology has changed, what are men's jobs and women's jobs? Do you see us having, in some ways, that same type of debate in 2018 as they were struggling with at the turn of the 20th century. I absolutely do. And one of the things that has startled me in the last couple of years in particular is the language, while updated and much more neutral than in the 1890s, is very much the same in some ways about how gender is being discussed and how it has become more normative to see these 
conversations play out in the social media environment. That is similar to what's happening in yellow journalism, for example, and changes that are happening in journalism at the turn of the 20th century. We're certainly seeing that tension play out, and it is a reflection of the pressures that the society is under during times of massive change. And we're certainly in one of those times now where technology and information and the acceleration of that is challenging those traditional roles. And when we look even now, we fast forward to the 21st century, places in the West have more women at the state legislative level than other states. Do you think this is an outgrowth of that spirit, that frontier spirit? Or is there some other reason you think that uh, women continue to be as well represented in some of those states? It's difficult for a historian to project into the future. But certainly what's happening here is an establishment of practices that will allow for a long-term expansion of female participation. And the earlier that starts, the longer the culture is in place. Laura Woodworth Nye is a professor of history and the executive vice president and provost for Idaho State University. Good evening. I want to welcome you to the first presidential debate. The participants tonight are Brenda King and Jonathan Gordon. During the presidential debates in 2016, a political scientist had an idea. What if you take the candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and switch their genders? Same words, same body language, just in a different body. Well, one theater group wanted to test the idea, and they did. The performance is called Her Opponent. Well, here we go again. I have been uh, in favor of getting rid of carried interest for years, uh, starting when I was a senator from New York, but that's not the point. Why didn't you, you do know? it? Why didn't you do it? If you haven't seen it, go to our website to find it. Joe Salvatore is co-creator and director of Her Opponent. Daryl Embry played Jonathan Gordon, the male Hillary Clinton, and Rachel Tuggle Wharton played Brenda King, the female Donald Trump. And taking on this role, she told me that she felt... Uh terror? I, I, I think I was a little, uh, I was definitely nervous about adopting those mannerisms, the, that verbal quality and that persona that um, I was perceiving as quite abrasive. So taking that upon myself, I was a little scared of what it was going to do to me when I would have to then step outside. But it ultimately became a really fun experiment because the perceptions were so different from what we maybe assumed originally. And that physicality on me is really freeing in a strange way uh, because I didn't really have to care about sort of standing up straight in my posture and, and softening, you know, and smiling all the time, whatever. It just was really kind of a freeing physicality to adopt for a couple of minutes every day. And Daryl, what about you as Hillary Clinton in the male form? I, I guess you have an expectation as a performer, an expectation as an audience to the thing that we're creating. So I think the, the expectation as an audience member to what we were creating was that it was going to be kind of a slam dunk no-brainer, right? As soon as we see Hillary Clinton in a male form, that it will be clear. It will be clear that she's leading with facts and she's confident and she's poised. And these, this is, it's a no-brainer that this is the most qualified 
person. That was my expectation going in. And <laughs> what did you guys discover <laughs> as you did the show? Well, I think we got a lot of interesting feedback from the audience. The reactions kind of ran the gamut. There were people who came in that were, you know, I I voted for Hillary and I and I canvassed for Hillary and I'm a Hillary person and and I don't like this guy being me in, in Hillary. You know, Hillary. What did they see form. in you that they didn't they didn't recognize from what they saw in Hillary? From what we heard, it it was a lot of they thought I felt patronizing. They thought I was weak. That, that I was being attacked and bullied and I wouldn't stand up for myself, that I would smile and change the subject. I was a senator with a Republican president. Oh, really? And I will be the president you who will done get it. it done. If you were an effective, if you were an effective exactly right. senator, you could have done it. If you were an effective senator, you could have done it, but you were not an effective Please senator. It seemed like the reaction after those debates was, good for Hillary. You know, she clearly won this debate. That was good on her to, to do that, right? To not take the bait, to not get down in the mud, right? Those are the same things that my character was then criticized for. You're patronizing, you're mansplaining. You, why are you rolling out your list of accomplishments when that's not what we're talking about? So I wonder what those standards really are. And the standard are. of being able to, that you weren't fighting back. A right. man fights, right. fights back. So what is, the, what is the blueprint for a female candidate? If the, if the blueprint is sort of how Hillary was coached, why didn't that work? Rachel, when you came out and you looked like, you know what? I don't really care what anybody thinks about me. It mm -hmm. was very non-female, mm -hmm. right? It is not what we expect to see. Mm -hmm. And Daryl, when you came out, maybe a little self-conscious mm -hmm. even, that part of my brain said, well, what kind of guy is this, mm -hmm. right? There was this effeminate quality mm -hmm. to the way that you reacted. Did, did you feel that too, Rachel, that like because you were able to become not conscious of your gender, you could be something else? Yeah, it was empowering in a strange way that I didn't have to conform to these kind of standards that are often placed on women of how we should move and how we should speak, how we should interact in public, how we should interact with men. You are going to drive business out. Your regulations are a disaster and you're going to increase regulations all over the place. And by the way, my tax cut is the biggest since Ronald Reagan. I'm very proud of it. It, it will create tremendous numbers of new jobs, but regulation. You are going to regulate these businesses out of existence. It was a little bit like, I'm going to do whatever I want in a kind of great way. <laughs> um, I think it's fascinating, too, that so many people responded positively to this female version of masculinity, of kind of aggressive masculinity, and that once again, the masculinity was what was perceived as more powerful, more assertive, kind of more more positive. And Joe, your your family, you have a lot of Trump supporters in your family. Yes. Have they watched your, yes, your show? My, yes. My parents came to see the show and it was a really important moment for me um, because we hadn't talked about it. Them coming to see it opened up a space for us to have a conversation. And my mom, you know, said, you know, I'm watching this and I, or she told me afterwards that about halfway through, I, I knew I had made the right decision. And I thought, okay, well, that's not the decision that I made, but that helps me understand you and why you made that decision. And I think that's what the work, I think, has consistently done for us. I am not interested in being partisan about this. I am interested in understanding what is happening 
And and this work for me as a, as an artist and as a person who's curious about the world allows me and those people that are working with me to do that. To me, I guess the question that it raises is, would women be more successful then if they acted more like the way Donald Trump did? I think that's kind of hard to answer right now because we don't really have a precedent for what a successful female presidential candidate looks like. Um, we just have a historical context of all men. But I do think it's worth noting that what what has been sort of dictated to women as what is acceptable might not be true. <laughs> like what what we are constantly told as what is a feminine way to behave, how to be ladylike, right? What you have to do to be perceived as this certain way in a positive light, it might not be accurate. That's the cast of Her Opponent. Go to our website, thetakeaway.org, to find their performance. All right. After spending a week thinking about women in politics, here's my takeaway. Women want to participate in politics for the same reasons men do. They want to make a difference in their communities and their country. But the fact that lots of women running for office is a story tells me that we still see women in politics as an anomaly and not the norm. And let's face it, almost 27 years after Anita Hill, women are still being disregarded and disrespected in ways big and small. The Me Too movement has shown us that. It's also more accurate to call this the year of the Democratic woman candidate. My colleague at the Cook Political Report, David Wasserman, crunched the numbers on the first wave of House primaries and found that in races that featured at least one man and one woman, Democratic women have won 69% of the primaries to 21% for Republican women. Here's what else I'm going to watch for this November, the gender gap. Will we see women voters, driven largely by a dislike of President Trump, turn out and support Democrats by a much larger margin than we've seen before? What was your takeaway? Let us know. You can leave a comment on our Facebook page, and of course, you can send us a tweet at The Takeaway or to me at Amy E. Walter. And don't forget to take our Women in Politics quiz. It's up now at thetakeaway.org. I'm going to take it too. Let me know how you do. Tweet me your results. Thanks so much for being with me today. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Takeaway. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.